News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, ask healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, what the last year has been like working with the coronavirus pandemic, and they'd probably use words like challenging, terrifying, roller coaster. Uh, one year ago this week is when things started to ramp up, and today is that National Day of Remembrance for all the people who have been lost over the last year and all the people who've really suffered as a result of it. Well, Global News' Karen Lieberman spoke with hospital workers in the Toronto area to get an idea of some of the things that healthcare workers are going through, and she joins us now for more on that. Karen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what, what did you hear from some of these frontline healthcare workers? You know, like so many of the rest of us, they're exhausted, frustrated, but the feelings that, you know, you and I might have are just exasperated. You know, they're just so much worse for them. Um, and so they are, you know, frustrated because they can't always save lives, you know, exhausted from working longer hours dealing with greater medical needs. You know, the the people that are coming in with COVID are really, really sick. So yes, there's many people who get COVID and have mild symptoms and isolate at home. And then a couple of weeks later can go about with their daily lives. But the people that they're seeing are not those people. They're patients that are coming in with, you know, so many needs. And so it makes caring for them that much more complicated. And then there's times where they don't survive, you know, especially here in Toronto, um, you know, the numbers have not been great for those that go into the ICU. Um, And as you know, some of them have said that they wish that the public, you know, I mean, this is unrealistic, but they wish that the public can take a tour of what an ICU is like on a daily basis to see, you know, just how, how difficult it is and how emotional. And so the toll is evident when you speak with them. It's, you know, like they start off, right. everybody has, has a front and then it just, you know, behind that is the emotion. I guess the question then is, are they being supported? Like what kind of toll has that taken on them over the past year? So the supports are interesting. I mean, there was a couple of, I, I spoke with um, the head of psychiatry for one uh, large hospital network. I also spoke with a clinical psychologist. She's based in Toronto who specializes in physician wellness. And, you know, they recited studies to me that, you know, there's, there's been some some research, not a lot, obviously, as you mentioned, we're only at the one-year mark now, but, you know, there has been research that shows that even in the past, there is an overwhelming number of physicians who know, you know, 75 to 80% of physicians know that there are supports available to them, but maybe 15% are actually taking advantage of them. So a couple of reasons, stigma, obviously, lack of time, lack of energy. And so what happens is, is these issues, you know, the sleeplessness, you know, the the anxiety, it just worsens. And then the harder it is to treat, um, you know, but I, I'd love to mention, you know, one support that at the Scarborough Health Network, which is a, a network in Toronto of three major hospitals in East Toronto, they have this woman and it is the most, it was so wonderful to witness this. She's a wellness coordinator and she goes in. And so picture this, you know, you're in an ICU, it's really busy. It's a very somber mood. The patient's are looking, you know, it's rough. Like they're, they're really, mm-hmm. these are critical COVID patients. Everyone's busy. And then this woman walks through with his cart and suddenly pumps the tunes and everyone stops what they're doing and does a Zumba class in the middle of this ICU. Really? So the contrast, but I, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, honestly, you, you can't help but smile. Um, and that's in our piece that will air tonight across Canada where, you know, it's just such a contrast and for 10 minutes, it had to have been about 10 minutes, 
everyone was smiling and giggling and laughing and following this choreography. And it was like such a, such a change, such a shift in mood that you felt this sense of joy. And then literally 10 minutes later, she goes off with her cart and everyone goes back to what they're doing. And there was like, like everybody was able to take a breath, you know, and it was just like a, like a reprieve. Right. Something so you never would have seen example. before. Like you never would never. have seen that before. But now it's like not only expected, you're like, oh, I'm so glad they're doing something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, they're, they're exhausted and they're working around the clock. And, you know, like this one woman I spoke to, she's a respiratory therapist and, and they're the ones that do the intubations. They, so they really are with patients at their worst. They're putting, they're attaching them to the ventilator with the, with the tube down their throats. And so, you know, you can hear just in her, in her voice, like how, this has been so strenuous on her. And so, you know, they are encouraged to get help. They, they need to speak with people because PTSD will be real for them. If not, you know, they, they talk about burnout and it is a reality in the best of times. But now we are in a pandemic. So obviously, it's, you know, it's just even worse. Right. OK, so is that the thing? Do you think that has helped them get through this moments I like that? You know what else I think? I think that they that what we need to see, and this is the head of psychiatry for, for the Scarborough Health Network, of saying, you know, in the beginning, in that first wave, remember when everyone would stand on their porches? I mean, even in my own neighborhood, I remember seeing it. And my kids, we took chalk and we wrote on the, on the street, you know, thank you to the frontline healthcare workers. And there was such a sense of pride and appreciation. I mean, we so many of us either participated or we have friends who bang pots and pans. And, and, and that filled their buckets, you know. And so here we are a year in, you know, in the second wave, potentially bracing for a third wave. And, and there is not much of that anymore. There really isn't much. It's faded. And so I think yeah. that the sense that perhaps it's time to renew that because being appreciated goes a long way. We all know that. We like to be recognized in our jobs, in our work. And, and it's the same for them. And it helps yeah. them and it, it boosts morale. Wow, that's fascinating. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Rough start to the week, right, when it came to vaccination appointments, but those are smoothing out. Good news today. They are now ahead of schedule for BC seniors. So let's find out more about all of that now. Joining us is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Good morning. Thanks for getting up early. Hey, good morning, Simi. <laughs> so let's talk about this. This is your life every day, right? It is. Actually, even earlier. But yes, this is my I know, life every I know. Day. It's amazing. <laughs> let's talk about the good news. First of all, you're able to move up the schedule. So what's happening today? Uh, Today, starting at noon, uh, people born in 1936 or before who are 85 to 89 at noon can start calling in and booking appointments for their uh, COVID-19 vaccine, which is good news. It reflects the really great work done by TELUS over the last couple of days to to close the gap and then provide service yesterday. The response uh, when people called in was uh, immediate to call in to book their appointments, and that's good news. Today, when we're adding a whole new group of people, there'll be some delays again, but we hope to get through that. And it gives people 85 to 89 more opportunity to book their uh, to book their COVID-19 vaccine. If you were planning to do so next Monday, you can still do it next Monday. It's no problem. But starting at noon, uh, people in that new, new age category can uh, start uh, booking their vaccine appointments. So it, how do we know how big that cohort is? I know it was 50,000 in the 90 plus, but how many in this? Yeah, it's, it's roughly 73,000. Uh, and what we'll see, and when we started on Monday, we were doing uh, 90 plus in the overall population, 65 plus in the indigenous population. 
still going to be 65 plus, so people who are indigenous in BC can still book their appointments at 65 years and above. And we're adding this category of people. So if you add those two categories together, there's similar size uh, numbers of people. 80 to 84, of course, is more than 85 to 89, and so on. So the, as we move through the age categories, these groups of people will become bigger and larger groups to book. And when we get to the 75 to 79 category, which is um, in the next in uh, in a couple of weeks, then we'll have our our full online platform available, so people will be able to phone or they'll be able to do it online. Okay, so that was going to be my next question then. So you expect online to roll out when you hit the 75-year-old age group? That, that's right, 75 to 79 age group. That's when that'll start to roll out uh, province-wide. NBC, Fraser Health does have a platform now, but province-wide, our platform will be ready and will be rolled out with the 75 to 79 cohort and then continue on as we go down to, all the way down to uh, the 18 and above. Is it similar to that Fraser Health online platform? Because we've heard that works well for so many people. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I think it'll be similar to that for the for the user because uh, the key information will remain the same. When you call, you'll need your, of course, uh, first and last names, your personal health number, uh, and uh, address and other relevant information, and then you'll be able to uh, book your appointment and, of course, your date of birth. And uh, if anyone asks you, by the way, for your social insurance number or any financial information, that is not us because we will never ask you for those things. Okay, so that's moving forward. Let's talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine. We know it has arrived here. What is the plan for BC to use this? Uh, The plan is that BC is using it and will be using it. And initially, our medical health officers will be using it to deal with outbreaks or clusters in communities, generally at workplaces, to deal with that in the first week or so. And so we're giving the power to our medical health officers to make those decisions, uh, both with the AstraZeneca and with the increased amount of Pfizer and Moderna that we have because of the change in the extension of the second dose, right? So that enabled us to use uh, several tens of thousands more doses of vaccine. So that's being used to deal with workplaces where we're seeing uh, outbreaks right now. Mm-hmm. Then next week, we're going to lay out the full plan for AstraZeneca because we have a very small amount in now relative to the population, but more is coming later to say, well, these are these are the groups of people who are most vulnerable in workplaces to uh, the transmission of COVID-19 from 18 to 64, which we'll be using it there. And uh, so we'll be laying out that plan, but it's really the key to everything that our medical health officers are doing with vaccine is people's vulnerability and vulnerability to, to COVID-19. COVID-19, in particular workplaces. We've seen some workplaces in the world where people inevitably are close together uh, in spite of all the protocols that are put in place. And those um, and those places are amongst the places right. where we've seen outbreaks. Are, are there any concerns about the AstraZeneca vaccine? We've heard some news out of Denmark this morning where they stopped using it temporarily while they figure out a blood clot problem. Uh, will there be a review of this? Yeah, well, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been used in the millions, indeed the tens of millions around the world. So we have pretty good real-world evidence that these three vaccines that we have in our hands now and the fourth that's been approved, which we don't have yet, Johnson & Johnson, are effective and safe. Uh, They've gone through rigorous uh, regulatory processes, not just in Canada, but in all the countries of the world. But But we also learn things every day. And so we have to respond to those and uh, we'll continue to do so. But um, the indication, the strong indication is that these are safe and effective vaccines. Some of the most effective vaccines, in fact, 
that we've ever seen. Uh, they've performed much more effectively, for example, than our regular influenza vaccines in terms of their ability to avoid illness, which is a good sign. You say we learn something every day. We've learned a lot, I think, this week, right, about how this works. Uh, what do you hope we continue to learn from this process? You don't want another day like Monday. Well, Monday was a bad day in call centers. It didn't affect when people got their immunizations. And so uh, uh, it's frustrating for people because uh, this isn't, uh, as you know, Simi, this isn't uh, a bad Monday after uh, a bunch of good days. It's been a year of pandemic. In fact, today, it's a year since the pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization. So I think all of us uh, don't want bumps in the road too much. And uh, March is going to be this month, the week we're in, and the weeks to come are going to be some of our most difficult weeks of the pandemic because there's hope and there's all the need for vaccine distribution, which involves a lot of people. And right now, many of them are frail elderly, so that's a challenge. And we're also seeing a lot of transmission of COVID-19. It's still respiratory illness season, and it's still a challenge. We had more than 500 cases yesterday. And so uh, while, we're, while there's absolute hope in the near horizon, you can see it, right, with people being immunized. We also need people to follow public health measures. And I know people are tired, but we really have to dig in right now. The worst thing that could happen is for you or your loved ones to get sick with COVID-19. As we approach, uh, we move towards the last phase of this pandemic. That is not a good thing. And I really encourage people not to socialize with people outside their household right now. All right, more to come this afternoon. Thank you for your time this morning. Hey, anytime. Take care, Simi. You too. That's Adrian Dix, our Provincial Health Minister. The briefing coming at 1 o'clock. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is coming back with the Green Cope majority in favour and the two NPA Park Board Commissioners opposed. The Vancouver Park Board voted in favour of bringing back that controversial supposedly temporary bike lane in Stanley Park for this summer. That vote was five to two last night. It's controversial because the bike lane eliminates pretty much one lane of traffic for cars and a number of parking spots. And that is something that businesses in the park have said they vehemently oppose. And they say they need that traffic, especially this summer, to survive financially. But doesn't look like it's going to happen. So let's talk about what went on at that meeting last night. Joining us is John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, who voted against this. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simi, for having me. What is the justification for this? Like, what did you hear from Park Board Commissioners last night? Well, I heard a lot of talk about climate change. I heard, you know, a lot of talk about the fact that, uh, you know, we, we did it to COVID. I heard a lot about it, the fact that it was temporary. But, of course, it's the second year of a temporary uh, uh, bike lane. And one of the things that both uh, NPA commissioners tried to do last night was to just make the simple request to move it to a committee meeting so the public could speak. Um, I can't tell you how many letters we have. We had a petition of 30,000 people that are concerned about this. Last night we had a we, we had a letter read out by Commissioner Barker from the Persons uh, with Disability Advisory Committee at the City Hall who asked Park Board Commissioners not to pass this motion to implement a temporary bike lane in advance of the mobility study which is underway and until there has been full consideration of the impact on persons with disabilities and seniors with limited mobility and full consultation has been undertaken. Now we heard a lot about consultation but we also heard it was happening quite, wanted to happen quite fast so the two things are not really, they don't really work together. 
Um, they didn't consult with the public, and they and they need to consult with the seniors and people with disabilities and the park partners for sure. What do you think the impact of this will be? Well, you know, we're we're hearing from Dr. Bonnie Henry that this summer is going to be different, and we're going to be approaching and moving back towards getting our lives uh, back to normal a little bit. And I think we're going to see a lot of uh, demand on Stanley Park. I noticed the other thing that really concerns me is Beach Avenue continues to be closed. So we've we've actually closed one exit out of the park, which again uh, causes congestion and will cause traffic in the park to really come to a standstill many times and i think that's going to be frustrating for for everybody and um going to make it really difficult um for people to uh to move in and out of the park so once it they keep calling it temporary but is this really going to be temporary if it keeps coming back like this no matter what the consultation says well, I, uh, all I could say is that, um, you know, we've had a number of temporary bike lanes in the city of Vancouver over the years. I can't recall any that didn't become permanent. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's that's a, a pretty, uh, I think, pretty well tells you what direction this is going. The other thing is, uh, you know, we did get a legal letter from one of the partners uh, before the meeting, um, you know, concerned and, and indicating that there could be some um, uh, legal challenges for the park board. And um, the other part is the revenue. You know, parking in Stanley Park generates about $5 million a year. Uh, last year, we saw a drop of about $3 million. I, I've asked uh, our staff to give me some figures on what the drop is in uh, shared re- revenue from restaurants and leases and things like that. The park board budget is a little over $100 million, $120 million. So if you start to take $3 million, $5 million, then maybe there's another money from the uh, restaurants and partners and aquarium leases and things like that that aren't able to pay. This could be a, temp- you know, a, a huge um, problem for the park board budget. And um, you know, where are they going to get the money? I think we're, I, I'm concerned we're going to see cuts to services like we saw in 2009. What about the mobility study then? You mentioned this. What is the point yeah. of doing it if the decision has already been made? Well, it's, that's a concern. They did, it does say in the motion that they, the, the board will consult, but it's hard to do. These consultations take time, and that's why there is this study. The board asked for a study, and they're, they're jumping ahead of the study. I think this was a year to leave things alone, let people try and get back to some semblance of normal. Let's see if we can get the park functioning and, and, and help our partners in the park. You know, I contrast this with the city of Vancouver, who has done everything they can to help support restaurants in the city, including giving them patio space and, and all kinds of things to be helpful. The Park Board has really taken a very, uh, I would say, almost an anti-business attitude to their partners in the park. And, uh, you know, they all have legitimate leases. Um, I know that the, the horse trolley, their revenue was down. He's just struggling, just getting by on about 5% of his revenue. And, um, you know, that's a longtime partner who's invested. We have the restaurants, uh, the Prospect Point, and the, the um, I think, put in about $22 million on a reno on, of that restaurant, as well as the pavilion in the center of the park. So, you know, th- these partners have stepped up, and, and they're, good biz- they're good partners, and they love this park. We all love Stanley Park, and um, I don't think we're listening to folks. How tight are the finances for the park board right now? 
Well, luckily this year, because of the pandemic, uh, we had a shortfall of, I believe, um, almost $30 million, and the city stepped in um, and, and helped out. Uh, going forward, I'm not sure that that support is always going to be there because we get half our revenue, half our money from the city, and the other half is based on the revenue we get, whether it be through, you know, the Tap and Barrel restaurant in the Olympic Village, which is a, a park in the community center, or seasons in the park, or, you know, you know our revenue from conserv- the conservatory and uh, Van Dusen is also down. Luckily, the only savior we have right now is golf. Uh, people are getting out, and their our courses are just uh, are, are off the charts. Our, our revenue on their courses is good, but it's not enough to compensate for these losses. And that's a concern. This Green Cope Alliance, um, you know, they're not very. They don't seem to be very practical. And of course, I've been on the board for a while, almost ten years. I'm the longest continual serving commissioner, and um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to work with them and say, hey, you know. You got to think about some of the other aspects of your of your responsibility as a commissioner, and they just seem to be so focused on this uh, bike lane. I, I know that they're heavily influenced by Hub, which is a you know it, it's a an organization that promotes cycling, but I think it's I think it has too much of a voice in. Um, in, in, um, but if you're getting all of these emails and calls, I mean, certainly other commissioners are as well. Is there no acknowledgement of the fact that this is such a huge issue for so many people? No, they seem to be very ideologically driven. You know, um, our job is really to protect and advocate for parks. And, and I know there's, you know, there's always some concerns about, you know, you don't want too much commercial activity in parks. And, and I get that. There's the, there's the passive part of the park, but... Stanley Park is not just a, um, you know, a local park. It's a destination park. And normally we get, you know, 13, 14 million people a year. Now, we're not getting that now because of, obviously, the cruise ships and things like that. But it's still very heavily used. And I just contrasted, if you looked at the Seymour Mountain and the various regional parks, their parking lots were full all last year. Our parking lots, not so much. And I think a large part was because of the changes that were made. Uh, Mr. Kubar, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, Surrey residents, listen up. A Freedom of Information request shows that one of the newly hired deputy chiefs for the Surrey Police Service is making a base salary of about $235,000 a year, but expected to be up to $320,000 a year with benefits and overtime and all of those things. And that is more than the Premier of the province makes, more than senior RCMP members make right now. Let's talk about this developing story with the help of our Global News reporter, Janet Brown, who joins us now. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Yes, this Freedom of Information request was uh, filed by the group in Surrey called Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Uh, They filed it to ask this information about the salary of the deputy chief, one of the deputy chiefs in Surrey, Jennifer Highland's salary, because they said somebody had asked her what she was earning and she refused to answer. So they decided to file an FOI to the Surrey Police Board and they received that information back. Now, their spokesperson is Paul Danes, and here's what he has to say about her salary. It's uh, what we call it here in our campaign. Is it's, uh, These guys have won the Surrey Lottery. You know, they're going to pay a huge amount of money for what, in our opinion, 
is a police force that will never happen because the minute we get to a municipal election, we're going to vote Mr. McCallum and his crew out. And I'm sure that the incoming administration, new mayor, will almost certainly can this uh, um, transition. Also, Mayor McCallum only has a majority of one on his council. He's basically a heartbeat away from losing control of the council, and uh, that doesn't bode well for this police transition, in our opinion. That's so interesting, Janet, because I, I was also curious that if that's what the one of the deputy chiefs is making, do we have any idea of what the other deputy chiefs or perhaps the chief is making? Well, we put that to the National Police Federation President Brian Sauve. Uh, we asked him, how does her salary compare to the others? And also, how does her salary compare to those in the RCMP? Here's some of what he has to say. There's no doubt that the RCMP is more cost-effective for Surrey taxpayers, whether that be from its police officers that I represent and and get paid significantly less than their counterparts, and we're working on that, Um, whether it be up to the executive ranks, uh, you know, the commanding officer of British Columbia or even the chief of police in Surrey, currently Assistant Commissioner Brian Edwards, who is going to be paid significantly less than a chief. So that's part of the value that the RCMP providing to the taxpayers. And this is just showing that without even a boot on the ground, um, there's millions and millions of dollars that are being spent um, to higher executive salaries. All right. I can't imagine this is going to go over well, Janet, with Surrey residents. No, I can't imagine that either. Um, it, just to boil down some of the numbers, too, that Mr. Save is talking about, an RCMP chief superintendent, which he says is the equivalent to a deputy chief uh, with the new Surrey Police Force, makes in the neighborhood of 180000 base salary. And here we have Jennifer Hyland making a base salary of 235000 Now, an assistant commissioner who is equal to a chief, he says, would make about 220000 if that person was achieving all benchmarks. So she is making more than a chief in the Surrey RCMP right now. So we took it one step further, Simi. We reached out to the Surrey Police Service to say, hey, would you have anything to say in response to this? Uh, they say they did a Canada-wide survey as part of the whole planning process for building the full compensation structure for the executive officers. They say the compensation package is comparable to what other deputy chiefs make in other similar-sized Canadian police departments. They say it's important to note that the contract is competitive, but they also say that it is not the highest, nor is it the lowest in the Canadian policing market. So, we took it one step further, and we tracked down what the three deputy chiefs make for the city of Vancouver. They earn between 262000 and 276000 base salary, which is more than what Jennifer Hyland's base salary is of 235000 which is interesting. Right. That is interesting. Uh, but the Vancouver Police Department, when I looked this up, I mean, there's a lot more officers. It's a much larger force than what Surrey is even planning to have right now, isn't it? Simi, it's almost double yeah. what the city of Surrey has right now and what they plan to have with this new uh, Surrey Police Department as well. Um, and, you know, Simi, there's still a lot of questions, as you and the listeners know, about this new police service. Yeah. Many in Surrey say the service 
will never see the light of day, even though they have a chief in place. They've hired three deputy chiefs as well as others. Uh, there have been several police board meetings as well. But the big question remains, how much is this going to cost and when will boots be on the ground? And in, in terms of boots on the ground, this is really interesting. Uh, the Surrey RCMP officer in charge, Brian Edwards, put out his March newsletter this week. And let me just read you one line. He says, there is still no agreed upon timeline at this point for the policing transition to take place, which is really, really interesting because two years ago in May, when the transition plan was rolled out, April next month was set out as the startup date right. for the new Surrey Police Force to begin. So no agreed upon timeline right now. That's hmm, that's very interesting. I, I, things are happening, obviously, with the chief in place. And Norm Lipinski, the new chief, has said work is happening. Things are going on. But in terms of boots on the ground, police vehicles rolling through the streets of Surrey, we don't know when that's going to happen yet. And we should tell Surrey residents here what that means is that you're paying for the administration of the new Surrey Police Service without the new officers, but also still paying for the Surrey RCMP. That's right. And just briefly here, uh, again, Mr. Save saying uh, that cost estimates for the new force right now stand at $64 million. He figures Surrey taxpayers could be looking at an 11% tax increase to cover the transition costs. Mayor Doug McCallum has always said uh, the increase could be around 10%, but we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Has Mayor McCallum said anything about this, especially with, in light of the police board and being on the police board? No, he has not, but it was the police board that approved these salaries, So, and he is the chair of that police board, so that's as much as we know right now, Simi. All right, Janet, more to come on that. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown talking about the Surrey Police Services salary story. I think, you know, Surrey residents have a right to know how much you're paying these high-level people of your new police service, uh, especially when you can have the ability to compare that. Wasn't one of the problems with having the RCMP being the secrecy? Right? That was it. They're so secretive. We can't find out anything. Well, this is supposed to be your police service. You should certainly be able to find out what the officers and everybody, uh, the ones currently working there, are making. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Have to admit, I was surprised to see this headline that the idea of frozen BC spot prawns could be illegal because of the interpretation of a new ruling from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So let's find out more about this. Joining us now is Sonia Strobel, the CEO of Skipper Auto Community Supported Fisheries. Sonia, thank you for being with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me, Simi. Good morning. What is going on with this? Is this is this the case that it is illegal to have frozen spot prawns? That's correct. It is now, as of now, it is illegal to have tubbed frozen spot prawns aboard your fishing vessel this season. Why? Yeah, great question. So this came about about a week ago. We got an email from the industry associations notifying us that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans had reinterpreted an existing regulation that says that spot prawns on board vessels need to be readily available for measurement. And that, of course, makes sense. And right now, the way that uh, fisheries officers measure uh, spot prawns on board vessels is they'll come on board and measure them live if they're on the sorting tables as they're being caught. 
And if they've already been frozen in tubs and they want to do further inspection, they just thaw one of those tubs and it takes about two to three minutes under running water to thaw one of those tubs. So that has always counted in the interpretation of being readily available for measurement. But just now, last week, without any warning and without any consultation with anyone in the industry or any Indigenous groups, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans simply announced that this was no longer counted as readily available to be measured and it's now illegal. So what does that mean to the industry? Yeah, this is devastating for the industry, especially in a year following the pandemic when export markets all but disappeared. Um, Harvesters really depended heavily on the, uh, the ability to freeze prawns at sea and to sell them into Canadian domestic markets. And the markets domestically have just exploded. People love spot prints. They love to be able to get them. And it's not, it's not good enough just to say, oh, we'll come down and get them live from the docks. We're lucky if we live in, in Vancouver, we can do that. But most people don't. And so these frozen tubs of prawns at sea are really the way that most um, harvesters who prawn, that's how they make most of their income for the whole year. And they're going to lose that. Uh, now, I seem to understand or what I remember about the spot prawn industry is that actually local fresh sales are, are relatively new, that the primary driver for this industry for years has been frozen spot prawns being sold overseas. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And increasingly domestically, there's such a short season, you know, they're only harvested for like four to six weeks. And so really having them fresh is, is kind of a nice treat, but the bulk of it is frozen. So this is absolutely devastating. If harvesters can't freeze them at sea, um, they're, they're really vulnerable. What, what are they going to do? So yeah, what do they do then? Do they bring them back to shore and then freeze them? They can bring them back to shore, but then they, they have to sell them to uh, somebody who has the capacity to handle all those live prongs and to, to maybe freeze them in a plant. And what that does is it really just takes the, op- take the, takes the money out of the hands of the harvesters and it spreads it around the supply chain in a way that makes it very difficult for harvesters to stay in a business that's already very risky, very difficult to make a living at. Do, do you think it affects sort of the freshness of the product too, like the difference of, of when you're going to freeze something? Yeah, that makes a huge difference. Spot prawns, as you probably know, if they die while their head is still attached, there's an enzyme in the head part that deteriorates the meat of the body very quickly. And so the faster that you can tail them and freeze them, then you can really preserve that firmness, that catch the freshness, that beautiful flavor. But if they're on board the vessel, um, if you want to keep them on board the vessel long enough to have them processed on shore, you have to outfit your vessel with tanks, with live tanks and bubblers that will keep them alive. And that's a whole other expense that just doesn't exist in the industry in, on most boats because they've outfitted their boats for this much better way of preserving them, freezing them at sea. Right. right. So, Sonia, has the DFO had any response to the concerns from the industry on this? It's been really very minimal and very disappointing. The only response we've had from the DFO and from the Minister uh, of Fisheries is to say that we will work we're in consultation uh, to, to come up with a, a solution with harvesters. So we, first of all, have those are kind words, but we've never seen collaboration and work uh, transparency around decision making around this issue. And secondly, the, the big important thing that hasn't been addressed is why. Why has this come about now? It's being touted as a conservation issue, but it's clearly not a conservation issue. So the size of spot prawns was set by the industry itself <clears throat> merely because there wasn't a market for small prawns. And so if harvesters were catching small prawns and they were mixed with the larger ones, they get paid less for the batch. And so the industry itself put in restrictions to say, let's have uh, a mesh size on our traps 
that would filter out those smaller prongs and ensure that we're only targeting largest ones. So even that is not around conservation. That was around market demand to have size limits set on the prongs <clears throat> that are harvested. Right. So essentially, it sounds like the fight will continue over this. It certainly will. It's not over yet. And we really, we really encourage folks to talk to your MP about this and to demand answers because the bigger issue here to me is how are decisions made by our government? They should be made in consultation with Indigenous mm. people and with, with uh, concerned stakeholders. And so we need to ask, we need to demand for that, that attention. So we have a petition on our website. It's already got almost 2,000 signatures in just one day. And that's across Canada. People really care about this. So we encourage people to check that out at skipperauto.ca. Okay. And join us in this fight. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sonia, for your time on that. Thank you, Simi. Sonia Strobel is the CEO of Skipper Auto Community Supported Fishery. The local industry is very worried, as well they should be, that the sale of frozen BC spot prawns, so the ones that are frozen at sea, uh, could now, or are now, considered to be illegal. So they can't do that. That's a huge blow to the local industry. So, uh, yeah, let uh, check out their website for more on that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is getting to be tax time, right? I was just organizing my tax information on the weekend. It is going to look different this year compared to years past. And because of the pandemic, it means that there are some benefits that are taxable that you received in the past year, some which are not. There's all sorts of questions about home offices, like what's taxable? What can I do? So we thought, let's get some answers to these questions. Joining us now to help make filing your taxes a little easier as tax expert with UFile, Jerry. Vitoratos. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Are you getting a lot of questions like because this year does seem so different? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, there's really two things uh, that I'm getting a lot of questions on, of course, is how are the benefits, like you mentioned before, how, how are they going to get taxed? How is that going to look on the tax turn? And then, of course, uh, specific deductions that that relate to the pandemic, uh, like you mentioned, again, uh, home office expenses more specifically. Okay, so let's talk about the big changes this year, Jerry. What do you think people really need to know? Uh, the first one is home office expenses. Okay, so now uh, most Canadians who are required to work from home are now newly eligible to claim home office expenses on their tax return. Uh, now, the great news, this, this is actually not a new deduction on your tax return, but the great news is the government has simplified the way you can claim those home office expenses. So they're giving you a choice between either taking what they call the temporary flat rate method, where all you need to do is claim, all, all you need to do is to prove essentially that you worked for at least a month at home due to the pandemic. And then the government simply gives you $2 per workday that you worked at home as a deduction on your tax turn up, up to a maximum of $400. And then the second option is the old method, I guess you could call, which now the government calls the detailed method. And there you are now deducting actual expenses you incur in your home. So for example, uh, rent, uh, electricity and heating, uh, pens, paper that you bought, etc. So that's, that's the big change. And that's gonna have a big effect on people's tax returns. Right. How do people decide, though, which one is better for them? Very simply is to do the math. Uh, so, so you're on the temporary flat rate method, you're capped at $400, which means that essentially the government is giving you credit for 200 work days in the year last year. So as long as your itemized expenses go above that $400 threshold, then you're better off uh, taking the, uh, the detailed method. Now, the catch, though, to that is that for the temporary flat rate method, 
it's essentially a no questions asked deduction, meaning the government's not going to ask you for any proof, essentially. They're not going to ask you for any documents or, or uh, a document signed by your employer. Meanwhile, if you take the detailed method, now you have administrative requirements, meaning you have to keep receipts for those itemized expenses, and your employer has to sign off a specific form, which is the T2200S, uh, basically certifying that you're required to work from home. Right. Okay. So if you do that, though, like, let's say you had to buy a desk, you had to buy a chair to work from home, let's say you had to increase your internet capacity to be able to do that. Does all that qualify? Unfortunately, no. Uh, equipment would not qualify as a home office expense. So if you're buying, uh, if you, let's say you bought a new computer or you bought a desk or chair, that's considered equipment. And unfortunately, those are non-eligible expenses. Now, your home internet is eligible. So if you've increased your cost, uh, then you're allowed to claim. And for example, long distance charges, long distance charges on a, on a residential line would be eligible as well. But beyond that, you're, you're a little bit bound. You're a little bit limited. Uh, the other catch uh, with the detailed method is, of course, you have to prorate your eligible expenses by uh, the, by what your home office represents right. vis-a-vis the rest of your home, right? So okay. if, if the room you're in is 10%, that's all you're allowed to claim. Okay, so then, Jerry, I can see why that $400 no questions asked tax credit would be attractive to people. Yes, because uh, essentially the government literally stipulates on the form that they're not going to require any documentation from you uh, when you're claiming that deduction. And, and for the most part, uh, especially for those who are homeowners uh, that are claiming this deduction, it's very, uh, it's very unlikely that the detailed method would be beneficial. For those who are renting, it does become beneficial. It might be more beneficial to take the detailed method because you can deduct the, your rent uh, within those expenses. Okay, this is all super helpful information, Jerry. I'm learning a lot here. So what else do you think people really need to remember about this process? Uh, if, uh, if we're talking about, uh, if, you're, if we're talking about home office expenses, like you mentioned, uh, simpler is better usually. Uh, more likely than not, about 90% of people will, will fall under the, uh, under the temporary flat rate method. That would be, uh, the better option. Remember, the, the, the simpler, the better. You don't want the government to start poking around and start, and, you know, you making claims that the government might need to audit. Uh, so if the government's giving you something, no questions asked, take it. Absolutely take right. it. But otherwise, be careful because you're right. You don't want to start making all sorts of weird claims on there that would attract attention. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't want to go through an audit with a CRA. It's quite, it's quite a painful process uh, with them. And, 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 and just remember that because this is new this year and because so many people are newly eligible for it, you can bet that the CRA is going to check these vigorously, especially the detailed method ones. Because you're, there's, no, there's no real cap on the detailed method, your cap is essentially your employment income. Meanwhile, the temporary flat rate method, you're capped at 400. So, so you can really claim quite a bit under, okay. the, the, under the detailed method. Excellent advice this morning. Jerry, thanks so much for that. All right. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate that. That was super informative. That's Jerry Vitaratos, who's a tax expert with UFile, kind of highlighting one of the big differences in this tax season versus, you know, years past is a lot of people are looking at their home office expenses going, what can I claim? What can't I claim? And then Jerry did a great job of kind of walking us through that. Uh, Still ahead, don't forget today, one o'clock this afternoon, press conference from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix. Not only are we going to get updated modeling predictions for the province, but we'll get those updated COVID-19 numbers too. So that's one o'clock and you'll hear it live on the Jill Bennett show.